Continuing to study through the book of Acts this year and drawing near the end of it, Acts chapter 20, it's on page 1100 in your pew Bibles, Acts chapter 20, page 1100. In 1992, the Mall of America opened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A huge, huge mall. Uh, I think it's still the biggest in America. Uh, the, the, the square footage of that building could take up 88 football fields. Uh, they hired twice as many people to work in the mall as were employed by the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota itself. And, and when it opened, there was a church near there, Wooddale Church. I don't know if you've heard of Wooddale Church. It's a large church in the area. I had the privilege of worshiping there once. And uh, they had a worship service inside the mall when it opened. They called it the Mallelujah. Uh, the Mallelujah was held in the rotunda, and people had different reactions to the Mallelujah. Some thought, wow, this is super cool, Christians out in public worshiping God and just being out there uh, in the public space. Uh, others thought it was uh, terrible and that it was, you know, the optics of it were bad. And I, I kind of lean toward the former opinion. I think it's great when Christians can get out and be, be bright lights in the world. But, but it, it was interesting. Uh, There's another author. His name is uh, Oz Guinness. He's a Christian author and writer, great, great thinker. And he said, you know, his concern was different. His concern wasn't so much the presence of a church in a mall. He said he thinks the real challenge for evangelicalism in America is the presence of the mall in the church. That the danger isn't the church in a mall, the, pres- the danger is a mall in the church. In other words, he's talking about the, the problem and the challenge of consumerism in our culture and the way consumerism really does pervade everything in our culture. You're all familiar with consumerism, I'm sure. Consumerism is this state of mind where the consumer is king. And, and what the consumer wants is what the consumer gets. And so all of life is arrayed as a series of choices that are marketed toward the consumer and, and uh, uh, advertised toward the consumer. And so the consumer can choose this one today, but if tomorrow that's the better deal, the consumer can let go of this and choose that. And so life is sort of set up like a Google search engine where we, where we kind of get what, what we need and we can pick and choose. And there's a problem with that. This isn't really an economic statement I'm making. It's more of a spiritual statement that that kind of environment shapes our hearts. It, it forms our hearts and our outlook in very subtle yet powerful ways so that when we then come into the realm of, of spiritual things and the realm of God, we can often approach it as consumers. You know, what does God have for me? What can this place offer me? Is, is this working for me? And, and Christians can become kind of church consumers and spiritual consumers. The problem with consumerism is, for us as Christians, it is totally antithetical to the gospel. Consumerism is the opposite of Christian discipleship. The mentality that says, what's in it for me, what's the best deal for me, I'll pick and choose, is 180 degrees separate and different from Jesus who said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They just couldn't be further apart. Well, here in the book of Acts, we have been studying the spread of the church in, the, in its earliest years, 
And, and especially we've been looking at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the major uh, human character in the book of Acts. He takes up the most space. And we have recently been looking at his third missionary journey and tracing that. But as we look at the Apostle Paul, we see a man who is the opposite of a Christian consumer. He was a man whose life was poured out for the gospel. This is a man who was not consuming, but giving and spending and expending himself for the sake of the name of Jesus. So today we're going to look at a a lengthy section of Acts chapter 20, all of chapter 20, and then into chapter 21, verse 17. And, And what I want us to see is that this is a beautiful picture of a poured out life for the gospel, the opposite of consumerism. It's an expended life, a life given for others for the sake of the name of Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this whole section. It's pretty long. It takes like five, six minutes just to read it straight through. But here's what I want you to do as I read, rather than zoning out. I want you to, to, to tune in, and I want you, here's what I want you to look for. Look for all the different ways that Paul pours out his life in these verses, uh, if, if you're a kid here and, and you're sitting next to your parents, maybe do this with your, with your mom and dad, if, whoever you're sitting next to your grandparents. Just read along in the story, and any time you think you see Paul giving his life and pouring out his life, just like point to that verse. Um, this might be good for husbands to do with their wives. Like husbands, you know, I want you to follow along and point because we need help. But anyway, you can do this together in community, read together in community, and, and as you see those, you know, point to those, like, ah, there it is. There's a poured out life, okay? So I'm going to read this. It's, a, it's a kind of a long read, but it's interesting as we trace Paul's third missionary journey to see him expending himself for the gospel. Let me read it. Chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days." On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate, and after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. We met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost, which is today, by the way. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived among you the whole time I was with you from the first day I came to the province of Asia. 
I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put on to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria we landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out to the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mnason, 
where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. So did you see a life poured out in those many, many verses? There's a lot there. Let me suggest four ways in which Paul poured out his life for the gospel. And I think four ways that that, uh, we could pour out our lives as well that I think are kind of normal for Christians as we give our lives for God. Here's the first one. Paul poured his life out through tireless travel. You know, this guy was in motion. He was always moving. You get all these place names. Paul's on foot. He's on going by boat. This was hard travel. This was arduous travel. Remember that when Paul was traveling by boat, you know, don't, don't have in your mind carnival cruise lines. Like, don't have in your mind, you know, the high-speed ferry to Nantucket. You've you got to be thinking of, like, the old-school wooden boats that are creaky and run aground and sink and that kind of thing. Um, this is what Paul sailed on. This was hard travel. And, and so out, throughout this whole section, I mean, he's traveling and traveling. You've got all these places he went to. If you want to, you can look in your bulletin. Hopefully you got this when you came in. If you look on the inside front cover at the bottom, here's a map that will show you all the places Paul traveled. So if you look at the map and like look right in the middle, you'll see in bold the region of Phrygia and Asia. And if you look right below Asia, you'll see the city of Ephesus. That's where Acts chapter 20 starts. And then you can follow Paul's journey in the, the heavy dotted line north up to Troas, and then he goes over into Macedonia, all the way down to Greece. And then you see like the light little dotted line, that's the journey back. And you can see all the places he goes back, and you can see he sails to Assos and Mytilene and Chios and Samos and Miletus and all these places. Eventually gets down to Tyre, Caesarea, and then it ends way down at the bottom right in Jerusalem. So you just get a sense of all the traveling he did. So if you're kind of a map person, a name person, you can go back if you want, and you can trace all of these places and match them up to where they are in the book of Acts. But here's the point. This guy poured himself out traveling. He went to where the need was. He went to those places and preached the gospel. He now went back on this journey and re-strengthened the places where he'd preached the gospel. And this is what a poured out life looks like. You know, Jesus told us when he gave us the Great Commission. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. To be a, a disciple of Jesus and a disciple maker requires going places. You know, consumeristic Christians, they don't really like to go. Because going is it's kind of inconvenient, you know? It's not really efficient. When, when I have to go someplace, it's sort of frustrating. I don't want to go anywhere. You know, for the, for the consumeristic Christian, this is like the ideal evangelistic scenario. I don't go anywhere. People just come to me and ask me about Jesus. Actually, even better, they send me an email first to set up a time that's convenient for my schedule, and then we, we plan that convenient time for me, and then they come to me and ask me about Jesus. Actually, even better for the consumeristic Christian, how about my church puts on a program to get the non-Christians to come, and then I show up at the program, which is at a convenient time and place, of course, near my house, where I can just show up, and then they all come to me and they ask me questions. This is the consumeristic mindset. It's like I have my life, I'm busy, I'm doing my thing. I don't want to have to go anywhere or step out of my rhythms and my patterns for the sake of the gospel. And churches can, can sort of fall prey to this too. We've talked about this idea before, but, but there's this whole kind of philosophy of, 
of church outreach and church ministry that I think has dominated a lot of American culture. Uh, some have called it attractional church ministry. And here's the idea. You want to reach your region, you want to reach your area for the gospel, so here's what you do. You, you do a lot of attractive things inside the church to try to attract people in. You know, what do people want? What do people need? All right, let's do that in the church, and then people want to come into the church to see that thing or get that product. Can you hear the consumerism? Right? And, and so, so come on in. We'll, we'll give you this. But there's all kinds of problems with that attractional model. Um, I, I think one big problem with it is that it tends to create spiritual consumers. Have you heard this proverb? Whatever you win them with is what you win them to. So if you win people with consumerism, you win them to consumerism. If you win them with the gospel, you win them to the gospel. And so we have to be careful of of the methods we use and and how we're framing the gospel even by the methods. Another problem with that whole attractional consumeristic model is uh, is simply the fact that um, it's just not the pattern we see in Scripture. We don't see a lot of come and see. We see a lot of go and tell, as Paul went out to these places. And maybe a third problem with it is simply that we live in a post-Christian culture where maybe come and see worked a little better 50 years ago because people had a concept that going to church was a good thing. But nowadays, we're in a post-Christian culture. People who are being raised today, they don't have any category in their minds of let's go to church for many people. And so, so we have to go. We can't just sort of sit here and say, but it was a really good thing we did. Why didn't anyone show up? We have to go and tell. And so going takes a poured out life. Maybe God is telling you to go somewhere. God will, will call us to go at different times and different places. He might call us to go to a different country like Paul. Maybe he calls us to go be a missionary somewhere. That could happen to anyone at any time. God can call us to go. Um, some of you may have heard one of the members of our church just recently uh, was accepted with a missions agency called uh, To Every Tribe. Some of you guys know Josh Lundquist. Josh just got accepted to To Every Tribe, and it's this missions agency that goes to every tribe. They go to hard places. They go to places around the world where the, the gospel has not yet been proclaimed, difficult places to get to, often places that are technologically speaking um, not that advanced, not, West, not modern. And so difficult places to go and to live. It's kind of hardcore, and Josh uh, is, has been accepted to go there. Or maybe God is calling you to go on a short-term mission trip and go visit another country and, and be a worker for him for a week. Even that takes time and energy and money. It's inconvenient. It's hard. It's tiring. Or maybe at some point God would lead us to plant a church here from South Shore Baptist. One of the things our elders are praying about is that God would open a door for us to start planting some churches in our region around us. But, of course, to do that means that some of us have to go. And we say, whoa, 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 I don't want to go. I mean, I, I like church planting, but just not me, you know, because I like my routine, I like my pew, I like the carpet color, I like, you know, whatever. And we have all of our things we like, so the idea of going seems scary. But I think if we plant a church, every member of our church has to pray, Lord, do you want me to go? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but we have to search our hearts. Are we willing to go where the Lord would call us? Or maybe it's even like leaving your Bible study. You know, you've got a Bible study that you love, but then you've noticed the last couple of weeks, 
last couple of months you met some people in church. There's this one guy you met, and he seems really new and lost and maybe a new Christian and has a lot of questions. And there's this other couple that came, and, and they seem kind of new and disconnected, and you always see them sort of standing around at coffee time looking like this, you know, trying to act like they, they know what's going on, but they look really confused. And, and you see these people, and you go, man, someone ought to reach out to them. Why doesn't the church do something to reach out to them? You know, it's like maybe God's calling you. You say, well, I'm busy. I've got a Bible study already. Maybe you should go and leave your Bible study and start something with them and invite them to your house for coffee and start a new thing. That's this going mentality. Or maybe going for you is just talking to the awkward kid that no one talks to in class. Or maybe going is, is engaging that coworker at work. It's just really difficult and everyone stays away from them. But God wants you to engage them, invite them out to lunch, to go. But poured out Christians go. They don't just sit around waiting for someone to come to them. They go and they engage. Is God calling you to go? That's what Paul did. He went. But here's the second way Paul poured out his life. This is the second way Paul wasn't just a consumer. Not only did he go, but number two, he gave. He gave of his finances and he gave of his energies to serve the weak and the needy around him. Look at uh, chapter 20. At the very end of his long sort of farewell address to the Ephesian elders in verse 33, at the end of that long farewell address to the uh, elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul looks at his own life and he says, look at, look at what I did. Whenever I showed up in Ephesus, I didn't take any money from you. I worked hard. I worked an extra job, extra shifts. I was earning money so that I could help the weak and the, the poor and the needy who were there in Ephesus. And I was modeling for you the kind of providing hard work lifestyle that should mark a servant of God and a disciple and a minister of the gospel. And so he was showing that and modeling that poured out life, even financially for some. This is, this is a mark of a poured out life, that we see needs and we meet needs, and we say, I'm going to help with that. You know, the, the consumeristic Christian you know, looks at, at a church and says, well, what, what, what do you got for my kids? Hmm? What's this church got for my kids? And what does that church have? You know, and maybe, I'll, maybe I'll send my kids here, and I'll go to my Bible study there, and I'll attend a service there. You know, that's consumerism. You know, what, what, what do you got? But, but the mature, poured-out person comes and says, what can I do to help with the children's ministry? Can I volunteer in the nursery? I don't even have a baby, but I want to serve so that other people can hear preaching and other people can worship. The consumeristic Christian says, where's the coffee in this church? Oh, I don't really like it. This is, bad, this is bad coffee. I need good coffee, you know? And when I come out of church, like, why isn't the coffee there? Why do I have to go over there to get the coffee? This church is oh, it's so messed up. It's lame, you know? And the, and, but, but the mature Christian says, do you need any help on the coffee crew, you know? The, the consumeristic church, you know, Christians, you know, like, I might go to church. I might show up whenever, unless there's something else going on, whatever, you know? And so they come and go and, you know, bebop around to different churches, never been a member of a church, never committed themselves to a church because they don't want to be tied down because they're a consumer. But a mature Christian says, can I be an usher and get there early so I can serve others? 
Right? That's, that's mature Christianity. Mature Christians, poured out Christians, use their resources to help the weak and the needy. You know, this is the difference between children and adults. What's the difference between a child and an adult? Children consume. They consume a lot. Adults provide. That's a basic difference between a child and an adult. It's not your age. It's have you come to that place where you're sacrificing and working hard to provide for others. And if you're a whiny Christian who's always whining about everything isn't working for you, it could be a sign that you're infantile in your faith, that you're just a consumer, whiny baby Christian. It's time to grow up and learn what it means to serve others and to to put your needs second and to put others first. That's mature Christianity. When you're concerned for, for the needs of others, when you commit yourself, commitment is a sign of maturity. Be boppy around, floating around, whatever works for me this week is not mature Christianity. That's immature selfishness that's not committed. But real Christians commit. They commit to a church. They commit to a people. They commit to serve others inside the church, outside the church. To be a mature Christian is to be a provider, not a consumer. So do you know anyone who's weak? I love how Paul says that he's here to help the weak. He said, in the words of Jesus, I'm in verse 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. Isn't that interesting? That's a quote from Jesus that we don't have in the Gospels. It's kind of cool. There's another word from Jesus here. It's more blessed to give than receive. It's more blessed to give to those who are weak. Who's weak in your life? Has God laid anyone in your life in front of you who's weak? We can't save the whole world, but often God puts people right in front of our face who need help. Someone who's discouraged or depressed or needy in some way and you know, it's, it's like Christ to help those who are needy. Or maybe it is someone who's new at church and seems lost or is a new Christian and they just need someone to read the Bible with them. Like, oh, but I'm busy. Yeah, but <laughs> what are we here for if not for the work of the gospel? It's other people to whom God is calling you to give and pour yourself out. This is how Paul lived. This was his model of ministry. He poured himself out by going. He poured himself out by giving. Number three, he poured himself out in teaching. He taught and taught and taught. Just his teaching is amazing. He's always teaching. You get two great teaching stories here. The first teaching story is in chapter 20, verse 7, where we have the first death by preaching. Paul preaches till midnight. He kills Eutychus. You know, he puts him to sleep. Eutychus falls out three stories, dies. Then Paul resurrects him. And then he keeps on preaching till daylight, you know. I think the point of this story isn't, isn't a commentary on Paul's long-windedness. I think the point of this story is that it shows Paul's commitment, that, that he was there for a short time. He knew he was leaving the next day. But Paul was there to pour himself out, and he looked at the needs of this church that he was at, and he saw that they needed teaching. And rather than being like, look, I know you guys need like, some teaching, but it is 10 o'clock based on my sundial here, and uh, you know, I've got to catch a rickety old boat tomorrow early, so I need to like, go to sleep. Like he preached. He just preached. He's like, you guys need teaching. I'm going to teach. And these were not consumeristic listeners because they stayed and listened. They're like, we need this. We need to hear God's word. Here is people who love the Word of God, both teaching it and hearing it. But the other, other way we see Paul's pouring himself out in teaching is we see it 
in his words to the, Jerus- uh, to the Ephesian elders. So the bulk of chapter 20 is this farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And, and one of the, I think, central themes, if not the central theme of what Paul says to the elders, is he says, look, I have taught you everything. I held nothing back. It's probably the main through line of this. You know, if you look at um, verse 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you public in house to house. Uh, and from house to house. I haven't held anything back. I've said, said everything you needed to hear. Verse 21, I've declared to both Jew and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Or look down at verse 26. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I've told you everything. I'm, your blood is not in my hands. If you don't believe and you're lost, It's not my fault. I've told you the gospel. I've told you about Jesus. I told you you need to repent and believe in him. He's taught the whole will of God. And and that's a mark of a poured out life is that we not only pour out ourselves in service and love, but we also pour ourselves out and we speak the truth to people. Consumeristic preaching never preaches the whole truth because the consumeristic mindset is always marketing things. You know, what, what does this person need to hear? And well, if I say that, let's see, so here's the truth, but I can't give it all to them because I don't want to scare that person away. So maybe I'll talk about this truth, but that one I'm going to kind of hide, right? It's, so we're always trying to like spin and, and position and posture the truth. But Paul never did that. He said, I've told you the whole thing. I've told you the, the joyful things and the hard things from the Bible. I haven't picked and choose from the Bible what you need to hear. I'm just telling you the whole shebang. I'm giving you the whole download. So you have it. You know what God's Word says. And this was Paul's approach to to proclaim the whole counsel of God. But this is not the way consumerism works. Consumerism picks and chooses because consumerism is worried about selling and and winning people over through persuasion. And Paul's like, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Here's what it is. And Paul not only taught the truth himself, but he urged the elders to do the same thing. So this is a great text on elders. Boy, I've got to tell you, I am resisting an urge to go on for an extra hour just about elders from this text. I mean, really, I'm, you know, maybe someone could go sit in the window over there and I could just go on and on until midnight about elders. Some young man wouldn't mind sitting there and we could reenact the fall of Eutychus. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, there's so much here about elders. Ah, oh, it's so good. So I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to talk about how elders are the ones who've received the, the authority to teach from the apostles who received it from Jesus. I mean, that's a whole cool thing. I won't talk about that. Uh, nor am I going to talk about how the primary task of eldering is shepherding people, that elders are primarily shepherds. They're pastors. To be an elder is to be a pastor. I won't talk about that, though. Nor am I going to talk about how there's a plurality of elders and how churches should be led by a multiple team of elders and not just one pastor. That's the New Testament pattern we see everywhere. There's so much to talk about there, but I'm not going to talk about that either. Instead, I just want to point out that the elders are supposed to teach the church as well, that they are also to pour themselves out in teaching. Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not 
Spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. And so I just want to exhort myself and exhort if there's any elders here today. I know there's some. The pastors who are here. The pastoral interns who are here. Any, anyone who aspires to be an elder someday. I just want to exhort you to, to be on your guard and preach the whole truth. Don't hold anything back. This church needs all of God's word, both the, the hard parts and the, the happy parts. The whole thing is what the church needs. I mean, don't you as a church want pastors and elders who teach you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Isn't that what you want? And so elders and pastors and those who would be teachers in the church and Bible study leaders and Sunday school teachers, I just urge you, teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth the whole counsel of God, so that when you're done with your Bible study or done with your Sunday school class or whatever it is, you say, I've I've taught it. God has been glorified through my teaching. And all of us as Christians, we have to be willing to speak the truth, the good, happy parts of the truth that people like to hear and the hard parts that people don't want to hear and the difficult parts. And that's true for all Christians because we all have a responsibility to, to teach and declare God's Word as Christians. I was, uh, Thursday night, I had a friend stay over at our house for the night, and uh, he actually uh, used to be a member here, then he moved away, but he was in town, and uh, he was telling me the story of, of an opportunity he had to share the gospel and speak the truth to a friend of his. So there's a guy he's worked with for about 15, 20 years. They go way back, you know, they have a good work relationship, but it's kind of interesting because my friend is uh, an evangelical born-again Christian, and his buddy he works with is not a Christian, but he's, he actually lives an openly gay lifestyle and is married to a man. And so the, the friend from work said, hey, can we go out to lunch? Because I want to hear about your faith. And so my friend was like, yeah, that sounds great. So they went out to lunch. They, and so he said, well, tell me about your faith. So my friend shared the gospel with him and how Jesus had saved him and the difference it made in his life. And then after he shared the story, then his, his co-worker looked at him and said, okay then, in light of your faith, what is your view of my sexuality? Just boom, <laughs> hit him with it. And he's like, I was not expecting that question. And so he just kind of took a deep breath and he said, well, I'm gonna tell you the truth. And he did it humbly, he did it lovingly, he did it non-judgmentally, angrily, but he's told him the truth. He said, this is what I think, and this is what I think God has created us, and this is what I think, you know, God's plan is for sexuality, and he just told him that openly. You know, a a consumeristic Christian would never be that honest, because a consumeristic Christian is always worried what everyone thinks, because a consumeristic Christian is always buying and selling and transactioning. We need to be not afraid to speak the truth lovingly, gently, humbly, respectfully, yes, but the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We need grace and truth. And if we don't have truth, it's not really grace. And if we don't have grace, it's not really truth. We need both, fully and robustly. And so let us be people who are willing to go, whether that's going far away to a faraway place or somewhere close. Let us be Christians who are willing to give and to, to meet the needs of others around us who are weak. Let us be Christians who are willing to speak the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, when those opportunities arise. And finally, let us be Christians like Paul, who are willing to pour out their lives and suffer and even die 
for the gospel. Here's this, this final theme you see, and it kind of, again, it weaves its way throughout this section, is this whole idea. Did you guys pick this up as part of, as part of the reading? That Paul is getting these words from God that he's going to suffer when he goes to Jerusalem. Have you guys picked up that theme? So it's like as he travels town to town, the Holy Spirit is speaking to him saying, you're going to Jerusalem and it's going to be really bad there. You're going to suffer. You're going to go to jail. Right? Look at verse 22. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. The Spirit is, God is sending me to Jerusalem. I'm not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. You know, we, we always wonder, God, what's your plan for my life? God, would you speak to me? And what if God was like, okay, I want you to go to Memphis and when you get there, there's going to be hardship and jail for Jesus. Be like, wait a minute, that's not what I meant when I asked for you, you to tell me my will, for, your will for my life. But he goes. He's like, I'm going. He says in verse 25, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's heavy. Or look at chapter 21, verse 4. This is when he lands in Tyre. He says, finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days, and through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So again, they, through the Spirit, they hear that he's going to suffer, and so they interpret that and say, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Or, or verse 10, when they finally get to Caesarea, there's Agabus. Agabus comes down, and he says, when you get to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up and hand you to the Gentiles. And verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, if the Holy Spirit's telling you again and again and again you're going to suffer there, like, are you getting the hint, Paul? Maybe you shouldn't go. But Paul was not a consumeristic Christian. Paul answered, verse 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to be bound and to die. Or as he said back in chapter 20, verse 24, to the Ephesian elders, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul's poured out life was a willingness to be bound and to suffer and to die for the gospel. I told you earlier about Josh Lundquist, who's joining to every tribe. He's going to be hoping to go out with them, Lord willing. And one of the things you do when you join to every tribe, it's, it's kind of hardcore, but they make you sign a document that they call your burial certificate. Basically, you write on the sign like, you know, this is what I want you to do with my body if I die on the mission field, and this is what I want you to do with my stuff. And I don't know to what extent it's a legally binding document, but I think the point is it, it shows that, like, look, I realize I'm going to go to hard places and I might not come back. And so they have to sign a burial certificate. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Think about that. Are you ready to sign a burial certificate for the name of Jesus? I'm ready to die for the name of Jesus? Wow, it sounds heroic, but when you really have to write your name on a piece of paper, I don't know. But this is where Paul was. He had signed the burial certificate in his head a long time ago. He's like, I'm ready to die for Jesus. If that's what God wants, no, no worries, let's go. I'm heading to Jerusalem. 
It's a poured out life. How do you get there? How do you get from consumerism to poured out life? How do you get from consumeristic to I'm ready to die for Jesus? I mean, there's, there's a journey there. And, and as a Christian, I see a lot of consumerism in my own heart. And, and I, I think about signing a certificate like that, and I'm like, yeah, I, of course I would do that. I think I would do that. Maybe I'd do that. I hope I'd do that. You know? <laughs> how, how do I get from A to B? And I think it starts by, again, preaching the gospel to our own hearts. It's what Paul said when he summarized the gospel in verse 21, where he said, I declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith. Acknowledging my sin and standing in awe at what Christ has done. These are the two truths of the, the two twin truths of the gospel. Think of them as the two beams of the cross nailed together. And together they make up the gospel message of the cross. There's repentance. I, if you're going to come to Christ, you have to repent. And you have to say, I am a consumer. I am self-absorbed. I'm not close to God. I am far away from God. And God has to go to me. I, I'm living far from God. And then even as a Christian, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I, I, I stray away. And God has to keep going to me to bring me back. Um, I, I look at my own heart and I realize that I'm weak. I'm one of those weak people that God has to save. I, I'm not righteous enough. I'm not holy enough. You're not spiritual enough. There's nobody here who's good enough, righteous enough, religious enough, spiritual enough, you know, green enough, whatever, to please God. You know, we all need a Savior. We're all sinners, desperately weak and needy. And not only that, I, I realize that, that I, I don't like the whole counsel of God. I'm a cafeteria person, a cafeteria Christian. I, I want God's truth a la carte. This, but not that. And I want to construct my own collage theology of what I believe. And I realize my heart is that way too. I don't want the whole counsel of God. And I'm definitely not willing to die for the gospel. And I need to see all of that in myself and own it and confess it and stop lying to myself. And I need to repent and say, God, I am a desperate consumeristic sinner in need of a Savior. And then we need that other truth that forms the gospel, which is faith in Jesus. We need to look from our own depravity and then look to the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace and see that God loved us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate poured-out life. Paul's poured-out life is just an echo of Jesus, really. I mean, yeah, you think Paul traveled. Look how much Jesus traveled. He's constantly, his ministry, he's traveling all over, went to all the villages in Israel. But he did more than that. He made the biggest journey of all. He came from heaven to earth. And he didn't stop at the earth. He went down to the grave and then up again. Nobody has traveled as far as Jesus for the sake of salvation. And Jesus cared for those who were weak. He was drawn toward the repentant and the humble and the broken and those who were in need of a Savior. And he was repelled by those who were self-righteous and thought they were all set. And the religious, he didn't want anything to do with them. He wanted those who were in knowledge of their need and were humble and repentant. 
And Jesus was not only going and not only was he giving, but he taught. He taught everything. He taught the whole counsel of God. Nobody taught like Jesus. And I love Jesus. He didn't hold anything back. He was loving and gracious and kind, but he was also stern and warned people. You know, nobody taught as much about hell in the Bible as Jesus. If you want to hear the most sort of vivid fire and brimstone preacher in the Bible, read the teachings of Jesus. He blows anyone else away. And so he taught what was loving and kind and gracious, but he also warned people, if you don't believe in me, there's a judgment day coming. And he gave it all to them, full throttle, which is why they wanted to kill him. Consumeristic preachers don't get crucified. And then finally, Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. And there on the cross, he served us and he, he poured out his blood, he poured out his life on the cross so that by dying for us we might be forgiven and rising again we might be saved and transformed. Jesus poured himself out. And so I think the way you make the journey from consumerism to a poured out life is you have to let that gospel truth just go deeper and deeper into your soul. You've got to accept it and be in awe of it. And you've got to keep coming back to the Lord saying, I need your grace and being in awe that God would send his son. And, and as you, so I think this is what happens, as our affections and our hearts are more in awe of what Christ has done for us, as we see more and more that Jesus is our life and our everything, then what happens is all of the consumeristic pull of the world starts to lose its allure. Because we say, Jesus is my life. And so I can pour out my money. Because you know what? Money's not my life. Jesus is my life. And I can give my time to you because my life and happiness is not found in managing my time for my own pleasures. I can, I can be inconvenienced for the sake of others because even if my time gets wasted, Jesus is my life. I haven't lost my life. And, and I, can, I can teach and you may not like me and I can, you can speak to your friends and they may not like you, but that's okay. Being liked by people is not your life. Jesus is my life, and I can even die for Christ, and I haven't lost anything because Christ is my life, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And so for the Christian, we could pour out ourselves because no matter what I give in a worldly sense, I still come out ahead because I have Jesus, and he is my life and my everything. And it's as the glory and the, and the beauty of Jesus as our Savior fills us up and fills our affections and captures our heart. And as we, as we treasure Christ as our life, it is then that we're free to happily, joyfully pour ourselves out by going and giving and speaking and dying. It's only as we treasure Christ that we will be able to say with Paul, I am not, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be filled up with your spirit. Jesus, that we would treasure you as our life and that we'd be willing to pour out our lives for the gospel, whatever it is you're calling us to do. God, I pray that you would motivate us, God, that you would send us out 
And Lord, may we be fueled by our love for Christ. May what Jesus has done for us so captivate our hearts and minds that the idea of pouring out our lives for the gospel just seems like nothing. It seems like an obvious thank you to you. Lord, I pray here for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would see the amazing beauty of the gospel message, that there is a Savior for sinners sent from heaven, and that they would repent of their sins, and that they would put their faith in Jesus. Oh, Lord, make us a grown-up church. Make us a giving church. Lord, purge us from consumerism. Put your Holy Spirit pointer on those places in our hearts where we are consumeristic. And God, teach us to treasure Christ above anything this world has to sell us. Oh, Lord, make us a poured-out church, we pray in Christ's name.